The world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Inspire Us. I'm Paul Nadeau. My next guest is Ian Tyson. And Ian has been entertaining and inspiring audiences around the world for over 30 years. He inspires them to realize their full potential and to seek happiness in life. His presentations combine hilarious and heartwarming storytelling observational humor, and meaningful life lessons to leave his audiences with words and thoughts to live by. He's one of North America's top inspirational speakers and has worked extensively with many companies. He's done TEDx conferences, special events, and he teaches optimism, resilience, and kindness. Ian's book, Hooray for Everything, The Optimist Manifesto is an insightful collection of stories, rants, and ideas about finding and keeping positivity. Ian is an avid home cook who brings his positivity and energy to the kitchen, and he was also featured on the Food Network Canada show, Wall of Chefs, in 2020. He has an online cooking show of his own called The Confined Kitchen. And now, here's Ian. Ian Tyson. Thank you so much for joining us on Inspire Us. I met you about a week ago, and we had this wonderful 40-minute conversation where we connected on so many different levels. You've got such an interesting past. You've accomplished so much, and I just had to have you on my show. So welcome to Inspire Us, Ian. Well, thank you, Paul, for having me, and thank you for reaching out and for the conversation last week. Yeah, the immediate connection was really fantastic, and uh, yeah, I—I I mean, we had to stop ourselves so we didn't—we we didn't forget what to record. You know, we didn't have—we uh, had to make sure we still had lots of things left to talk about. But no, it's—it's uh, it's pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. Now, I want to start off by asking a question. Okay. You're a comedian. You're an author. You're a motivational speaker, and people don't become those things overnight. There is a process and there is an inspiration that leads them to the path that they choose for themselves. You've chose many. What was it that inspired you to follow the path that you have for the last 30 plus years? You're even a chef. But not by any, you know, governing body has given me a certificate or anything. I just love to cook. Let's put it that way. Uh-huh. Throwing the word chef around has a little bit of a title and you did some schooling. I'm all, I'm all self-taught in that regard, but that's one of my passions and we can get into that. But in terms of doing these things that I've built this career on, I mean, for me, it's all extensions of my core being. And I mean, in terms of getting up on the stage and the actual speaking part, that started my final year of high school in the 80s. So grade 13 was still a thing. And uh, I was a student council kid all through high school running, you know, helping run pep rallies and spirit days and dances and doing all that good stuff and fundraisers. And I was president of my school. And I was also fortunate enough to be a part of a provincial organization that existed at the time where there was 12 regional presidents and you were tasked with running a conference and all of this stuff. So I ran a conference in London in April of 1989. 
And we had about 250 students at a high school for the weekend. And I was kind of the MC and host and we had speakers come in and it was great. And about two weeks after the conference, a girl from a school in London gave me a call because she couldn't text or email me because it was 1989. And she said, hey, Ian, do you want to come and speak at our school? And I was like, why? And she said, just come and be funny and tell stories, all you know, like you did on the stage at the conference. And I went, okay. So I kind of threw together some stories, I thought, and kind of went and they gave me 45 minutes. I probably talked for an hour. I went way over time. People were circling up and talking amongst themselves. It was horrible. Probably five minutes in there where people would stop their conversation and kind of look up and pay attention to what I was talking about. So I told myself, if I ever get the chance to do this again, do that. And really leaned in and started looking at other speakers that were out there, which there weren't many at the time. And because I was part of this organization, there were 12 conferences every year that were looking for cheap or free speakers. So that's how I built up the, you know, the material that I had. I just kept, it was kind of like doing open mic nights in standup. You just get up there and you speak as many times as you can, as often as you can to refine and hone the craft. And then by the time I graduated university, I was doing this at schools and at conferences, you know, on the weekends here and there for a very little bit of money, if any, maybe just my expenses. But by the time I graduated and I went through to be a teacher, but as anyone who tell you who came out of university in the mid nineties, getting into teacher's college was near impossible in the mid nineties. So I just kept doing this. And so that's how the sort of the impetus of the actual speaking part, but in terms of where that all came from, I mean, there's much longer stories there in terms of the inspiration. I mean, a lot of my story comes out of losing my mom at the age of 10 and the person she was and the inspiration I drew for that, the person my father was in raising three kids in the seventies and eighties by himself. And that humor was always something that was around our table. And that's another part of where food came from. But there was always laughter, even in the saddest of times. I still remember, it's so funny. I remember I was 12. So this would be a couple of years after mom passed still, you know, I'm a kid, I'm processing things. And um, my dad did one of those. So Ian, what do you want to be when you grow up kind of conversations with me? And I so specifically remember saying, and my dad remembers this conversation as well, because as no listeners were able to see, but you can see, I've got three comedy albums on my wall here behind me because I absorbed comedy. I didn't listen to comedy as a kid. I absorbed comedy. I just took it in. I studied it. I loved it. I love the whole notion of making people laugh and the craft of how these masters did this. And uh, my dad asked, what do you want to be for when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a comedian. And he said, why? And I said, well, because I want to make the whole world laugh because nobody laughs enough. And so I feel like I'm fulfilling that in that I'm using comedy often as the delivery method for inspirational and motivational messages. Like when I do a presentation, we're going to have fun. That's when I'm going to go and give a keynote somewhere there's going to be some laughs. There's going to be some serious stuff too, absolutely. And stories and everything else, but fun's at the core of it. I've often on my website, I call my presentations comedy with a message or to um, what's the, uh, th- that old, uh, that old statement, uh, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Right. For me, it's seek first to entertain, then to inspire. Ah, oh, I like that. Ian, what a great message. What I'm getting from that and the, 
the purpose, as you know, of Inspire Us is to help encourage people during these very difficult times and to inspire them with stories like yours, what created you. One of the things that you said that even in the darkest of times to look for the humor or look for a humor, you know, what is it that we can laugh about during these difficult times to carry us through those difficult times? Was it your father who was a comedian? Was it your mom that was a comedian? Well, I mean, the the inspiration, the resilience, the one of, one of my life mottos and one of the things that came out of one of my presentations is pain is inevitable, misery is a choice. That's one of my mantras in this life. I love it so much. It was my most recent tattoo. I see As again, that on you your arm. See, but yeah, the, it's, and what it is, it's actually in my mother's handwriting. Wow. So she, she had a brain tumor and couldn't use her right arm for seven years before she died, was in a wheelchair. And I was going through an old memory box my dad had given me of all school photos and all these other things and realized I have my baby book, which is the only sample of, of her handwriting that I had. So gave it to my tattoo guy and he went through and was able to cobble together all the words based on the letters that were in there. But yeah, so that aspect of my life and who I am comes from mom. The laughter comes from dad. He knew where the funny was. And it must have been extremely difficult after your mom passed away for your father and for each and every one of you as children to, to cope with what you were going through. Oh, sure. I mean, I was 10. My brother was 12. My sister was eight. Tough. And it took us all a lot of years. And I mean, look, I'm, I just turned 50 this year and there's, and there absolutely shouldn't be shame in saying, yeah, I, I go see a therapist. There's, you got to figure out where to put this stuff. A lot of what happened then started to become the narration of things like my attachment style as an adult in relationships. So there's so much of that stuff that's good to uncover, but yeah, it was tough. He just wanted us things to feel normal and he likes to laugh. Our whole family likes to laugh and, you know, he'd do silly dad jokes and everything else. But some of these comedy albums that I have behind me were ones my dad had. I wasn't supposed to be listening to them. I was, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, wasn't supposed to be listening to Steve Martin's wild and crazy guy, but I'd sneak it downstairs with the great big seventies headphones on. And I, I know that album forwards and backwards. I mean, I, studied it and what did he do right there to make them laugh and just there's something about the whole craft of the thing that always fascinated me and watching somebody like Robin Williams one of my absolute heroes and the way he could bring a really serious story really serious topic into the stuff he did I think it was his special his first one that he did I think it's called An Evening with Robin Williams from I think 82 maybe and he had this character that worked the newspaper stand outside that he did. And he kind of did the character a little bit during standup, but then at the end of this stand HBO standup special, there's a back and forth between Robin Williams, the comedian leaving the theater and Robin Williams as this newspaper guy character going, Hey, Mr. Williams, you know, and he's kind of a hard done by guy and really imparts this wisdom to Robin and it's, it was beautiful. And that, that was one of the things that really stuck with me in terms of being able to use some humor, but also tell a story and do something impactful. I like that. What we do as keynote speakers too, and, and you're providing some comedy. What I like to do is I want to make the audience laugh, cry, and think. Sure. 
because it is through laughter that we really unleash whatever's pent up inside us. We get to just let that ooze out. Then when you hear somebody's touching story, it may resonate with you on so many different levels. And then to provide what you do is that inspiration and that thought that people, when they leave the audience and, and leave the experience, they still remember the message that you delivered because you brought them on a roller coaster ride, which this life is a roller coaster ride for each and every one of us, right? Oh, 100%. And I mean, that's, that's the thing, like people listen in different ways. And as you well know, from doing presentations, uh, the one thing I've learned over the years is pay no attention to people's listening faces, because <laughs> listening faces are terrible. And you make you think, Oh, God, what did I say wrong? Look at the look on their face. But anyway, but the one thing that I love to, you know, curate through a presentation is when we laugh, we do it together. It's a communal experience. When we are, when people maybe are crying or emoting in some way, we're doing that together. So they all may listen individually, but when we can have that kind of emotional reaction of, of laughter or even that really powerful silence, that's something they do together when the audience stops becoming, uh, stops being a bunch of individuals and becomes this collective. And there's something really powerful about that. And that's one of the things that I love to do. I mean, I learned, look, in my earlier years as a young speaker, you, all you want is the laughs. Cause that's, you know, that's a little juice for you and that's getting the response and everything else. But I mean, especially now during COVID that's hearing the laughter is something I've, I've had to completely let go of because right. I'm not going to hear it anymore. I'm not going to hear those silences. I have to trust that the message is getting across. And maybe if somebody's just ingesting a presentation that I'm giving on their phone or on their computer on their own, or maybe they're in a, in a room socially distanced from people watching on a screen, that they're going to get what I'm saying and trust. I got to trust in the message because I'm not going to get the response. Right. It is a challenge right now because we are not connecting face to face as much as we would. Well, everybody wants to. Everybody is sure. feeling a disconnection. Zoom and, and different platforms do connect us visually. However, we are people that need that human connection and we get an energy, a different energy from the human vibrations, right? Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of what I'm doing now is, you know, using some software, I'm producing these, these presentations almost as, as a broadcast, like they're going out on as a private link on my YouTube channel to whoever my client might be, whether it's a school or a conference or a company. So in the case where it's a YouTube live, I'm literally not seeing anyone like in a zoom meeting, I am just speaking to the void and the mental gymnastics that I got to at least this was the way I everybody's going to handle their their own stuff differently in terms of what they do if they're a presenter or something like this but the mental gymnastics I went through in doing this was getting to this point and you may recognize this Paul having you know done a lot of speaking and stuff yourself is there's that moment where say you're midway through a presentation and you've got those type A folks that are in the audience that they're gonna be with you regardless. You've got their eyes. They're giving you all the energy. They're giving you all the feedback. But then maybe you're dropping an inspirational story or you're, you're speaking a truth and you see that person about midway back in an audience unconsciously nodding their head like, yes, I get this. And you realize you're getting to them and they may have been passive about it before. 
And in that moment, at least for me, in the myriad of conversations that are going on in a speaker's head on stage while they're speaking, I'd love to mic the inside of a speaker's brain because there's 14 different things going on. But one of the things I've always felt is I wish everybody else could go away and I could just say this to you because I see you're starting to pick up what I'm laying down. And I just want to tell the rest just to that person. So the realization I came to in these times is that when I'm looking at this green light on my computer, I'm telling this story, I'm giving this presentation to one person. Mm -hmm. That's how they're taking it in. So every presentation is a personal show for somebody. And to, that helps my energy level that it's me having a one-on-one -on -one conversation telling the story to one person who maybe needs to hear it. And we are connecting with individuals, yes. not a group. It is everybody is going to interpret and listen to what you have to say and apply it in their own lives and, and get something from it. Either they do or they don't, or they, they get the whole message. But yes, when you see that person who's nodding their head, who is connecting with you and saying, you're getting through. And then later you find that collectively, most of the audience has felt the same way because you made that personal connection with each and every one of them. I know that you're, you know, an experienced speaker looks at as many people as they possibly can sure. in the audience and makes a personal connection. And once you do, it doesn't matter if you turn your head, you're still connected to that individual because you've told that person, I see you and I I'm connecting with you. And that's, that's how it feels. Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of the goal is, let everybody feel seen. There's this, it's so funny. I'm, I'm not much of a country music fan, even though I'm, I have the same name as a country. Yes, Canadian you do. Yeah. When uh, I was looking you up, I, I came across as singer. So sure. Well, and I'm sorry to disappoint any of your listeners that saw that on the thing and went, Ooh, Ian Tyson, the country singer, really sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, I, I happen to be, you know, traveling for, for work, speaking somewhere, doing a number of schools or a conference, can't even recall what it was flipping around on the hotel TV as I'm wont to do. And I came across, there was, it was a documentary or something behind the scenes documentary about Garth Brooks. And this had to be 10, 12, 15 years ago. And um, it was, it was him about doing a major stadium tour and it was all this behind the scenes stuff. And just in the moment that I caught, and I watched a little bit of it, but this one moment that really stuck with me was him explaining a thing that he does before every stadium show. So he's, we're talking 80, 100,000 people, you know, in the Rose Bowl or whatever it may be. He goes to the maintenance people or the director of the stadium or has somebody figure out from the stage, what's the furthest seat away? And he finds out what that seat is. And when the stadium's empty, he walks up to it and sits down in that seat and looks down at the stage as his techs are preparing all of his stuff and asks himself, and he did this on camera, how do I connect with this person? Mm. And that really stuck with me. And when I have the opportunity to, if I'm in a theater or a, a conference or a school, if I've got the chance where I've got a few minutes alone in the room before anybody else is there, I will sort of eyeball it and try and find the furthest seat away. And especially in a high school, how do I connect with this kid? How do I make this kid who odds are didn't even realize there was an assembly today? And how do I make them hear what I'm saying? Or, or how do I serve that person so that they feel seen, they can relate, 
and, and, and go through things that way. I mean, cause that's one of the reasons I, you know, most of my career has been in education in, in speaking to schools, you know, high schools, colleges, universities. And I, you know, I talk with some of my corporate speaker friends and I love doing corporate gigs and I, I want to do more and more of them, but I will put stage work and the craft of the work that is done of myself and my fellow school speakers up against any corporate speaker every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Because if somebody's attending a corporate rah-rah type of conference, they have an expectation they're seeing a speaker. If you're paying to go see a Tony Robbins or somebody like that, you know what you're going to get. If it's a corporate sales retreat, you're pretty sure you're going to see a speaker of some kind. I'd say 80% of the students in the average school I walk into, no clue there was going to be an assembly that day. And walk into the gym or the auditorium with a look on their face of, what's this? What are we doing? And I've got a very short, I and my colleagues that work in in schools as speakers, you have a very short window of time to win those people over or they're gone, not physically, but they'll just check out. Right. Because they have no expectation. They don't have any buy-in. So you've got to make them buy in quickly by being of service to them. And that's why, you know, I front load things with funny, make them laugh because then they're listening. And then they'll retell the jokes and not even realize at first what the message was that was in there the whole time. Right. So there's a lot of work to it. And I, I, I will wave the flag for this sector of the business because the pay certainly isn't the same working in education, but man, the rewards are tenfold. This is it. it and the rewards are what we're after. We're after making change in other people's lives, or at least providing them with some tools that they can use immediately in their own lives to help them navigate this thing called life. Sure. So when, when Ian Tyson is in front of a school assembly, what's, uh, give me, if you can, putting you right on the spot, buddy, the, uh, the spotlight is turned on, the camera is rolling, <laughs> the students are out there, you don't have 75% of them, they're looking at their, their watches, they're looking at their, their phones, they're chatting amongst each other. What does Ian Tyson do to pull them in and what message do you then deliver to them? Well, I mean, mild addendum here, it depends on which uh, presentation the school is asked for, but so you want an actual example of something I would do to like a story I would tell to grab them? Why don't we? That would be kind of fun on a podcast, don't you think? Okay, well, let's put you on the spot. (laughs) Okay, sure. Let's do it. So for example, in one, this would be a presentation I would do a lot during the fall for schools, maybe for their incoming grade nines, new to the school experience, kind of freaked out, that kind of thing. I would walk on the stage and say, thank you, of course. And I would say just by a show of hands, and it's a little tougher to do virtually with people, but uh, how many of you have ever been to a concert before? Concert of some kind? My hand is raised. raised, Your hand is raised. Uh, How about a sporting event? Raise your hand. hand. My hand is raised. Keep them both in the air if you still have a ticket stub from one of those things. I have to put both my hands down. I don't don't have any ticket stubs, Paul. Nope. I, I not a one. Nah, I lost them, man. You lost, but okay. Well then, okay. You used to, I did. I did. So those, those ones that you used to keep, give me an example of a ticket stub you would have had, Paul. Oh, gee, I went to, uh, I went to a Commodore's concert uh, way back when. Nice. Yeah. Where did you see them? I saw them at uh, Mossport Park. Nice. Ba- back in 1979, I think it was. Awesome. 
that they were on there and I had that ticket stub. It meant something to me. Sure. I, I my, both I took both my daughters to uh, to, to a concert uh, years later, and it was a Brian Adams concert. Nice. And I remember holding on to those ticket stubs as well, because that that was a meaningful experience. Well, and so that that kind of leads to my question. So if if the Commodores ever came back to Mostport Park or if Brian Adams came back to the venue where you went with your daughters and you showed up with that ticket, would they let you back in? You know what? They probably would. Well, because it's you, sure. But <laughs> but no, simply with the, with a purchase ticket, they would not. They would not. And so the question then becomes, Paul, why did you keep this little piece of paper? And you sort of already answered it. It's a memory. It, it yeah. there, There's a connection. It, it brought you some joy. For sure. It's a memory. That's exactly it. And that's why at most schools that I go into, People will keep their hands up when I ask if they still keep their ticket stubs because whatever, when the, you remember when the band you went to go see sang your favorite song, the sporting event, somebody hit a three-point shot, kicked a field goal, scored the winning goal, hopefully not all in the same game because that would be weird. Or maybe you just remember when your friend fell down the stairs and it was hilarious. But whatever happened that day, that afternoon, that evening, it all comes rushing back whenever you look at that little piece of paper. I've got right here with me. I've got a little Raptors ticket thing that is filled with a bunch of ticket stubs, like comedy shows, uh, musicals, concerts, basketball games, all kinds of things in here. None of these are going to get me back in. But when I look at the ticket, I remember who I went with, what we did, all the memories come rushing back. We all keep these ticket stubs because we want to hold on to these memories. Well, for the students in any given high school that I'm speaking to, what I would say would be, the thing is you're going to get a ticket stub from high school as well. There's not going to be somebody standing there, you know, with a piece of paper when you graduate going, thank you for coming. No, it's nothing like that. It's going to be a, a class ring. It could be a yearbook. It might be a picture of you and your friends. It might be your math textbook, who knows, but something where when you look at it, all of your memories from high school are going to come rushing back. So I'd want them to think about two things. One, every decision you make, everything that you do is going to be on that ticket stub. So what do you want those memories to be? Do you want to look back and go, wow, that was pretty cool. Or do you want to look back and go, yeah, that was pretty stupid. Why did I do that? Hmm. And that's, I want, and I want them to think about that. And I would literally say, and I want you to think about that as we go through the course of the time we have together. And then I circle back to it at the end, but I have this whole notion and where do I have one here? I might. I might, where do I, I've got somewhere my own, why don't I have one right at the ready? Probably because I'm not doing a show today, but I have my own ticket stubs that are Ian Tyson presentation ticket stubs. And I pull that out at the end and tell students they can download them for free on my website. And sometimes I give them away, but it's this whole notion of holding on to those memories mm. and that's kind of an opening story I would do for, for a high school. I've got, you know, in one of my optimism presentations, I've got a whole other opening story that I would do, but it's trying to bring people in and, you know, maybe give them a little bit of laughter, but something relatable, relatable, relatable. And then they're on board. I want by the end of the first 10 minutes for people to be like, okay, giddy up, let's do this. And that they're on board. Right. And then they can come on the journey with me. And it is a journey. And I like the way that you put that because you are really the, the, uh, the symbolism of the tickets, 
the memories that each of those tickets holds for everyone and the fact that people are raising both their hands and saying, hey, I still got them. And Paul would still have them if it had not been for so many moves over sure, the, a number of years. But nevertheless, when I think back at those memories, they do bring some fond experiences back to mind. And the way that you put it for the students out there is that at the end of high school, I love that, is that you're going to have this ticket in your hand that said, I experienced this. What memories do you want that ticket to reflect? And then we can start having a conversation about choices and about the things that they do and how we treat each other and what our attitude is. And I always do that. It's through either personal anecdotes, observational humor, or just, you know, sort of thoughts and ideas and tools that they can use. But in any given section of a presentation, for lack of a better word, like a bit that might be, you know, a five to 10 minute story, it's, it's usually what's my point? Am I actually proving my point? And have I made it relatable? It's always relate, relate, relate. Like, I've talked to friends coming up in the speaking business who may have a wonderful story of something they've achieved that's super inspiring and that's great. And sometimes when we talk about the business of speaking and craft, the only thing I would say to them is, your story's great, super inspiring that you did this great thing. 99.9% .9 of the people sitting in your audience aren't going to be able to do that thing that you did. So how do you take the challenges you had in accomplishing that goal and make it relatable to them. Okay. Well, you touched on so many great things. I'm going to I'm going to challenge you right now that okay. I am the student assembly and you are going to give me one of those lessons and you are more than one of those lessons and one of those stories. You're talking to me. Uh, we have an audience out there. They're part of this great auditorium, this virtual imaginable auditorium that we have here. And right now we have the pleasure of having Ian on the show, uh, right on the stage right now. And he's just going to give us one of his stories and inspire us because it's, it's hard out here, man. Right now we're depressed. We're, we we're looking for some kind of, of guidance, some kind of hope, some kind of hopefulness and we're, we're struggling. I would say this, that I, I absolutely everybody's struggling and, and know this because sometimes, you know, there's that moniker and it's kind of the, uh, the old uh, Matt Foley, the, the uh, uh, Chris, uh, uh, why, why am I, Chris Farley character from SNL about a motivational speaker and, you know, living in a van down by the river and just this, this notion that we're all always happy. I just, before I get into telling a story, I would want to dispel that. Like I'm an optimist, but it doesn't mean that I'm oblivious. I'm positive, but it doesn't mean that I'm pretending. Right. I, I own that. That's why, you know, this thing that's tattooed on my arm is pain is inevitable, but misery is a choice. It's, it's a choice. And we, I do a whole piece about how we all have 2000 choices every single day on average, but so many of them become habits. So how do we change some of those things up? But the thing I would say maybe to, to start with this, you know, audience you have given me and me being on this pretend uh, stage right now in whatever the auditorium that we're in is when I would talk about a thing that I'm missing right now is the energy of an audience. And Paul, you and I already spoke about that, but energy is an interesting thing, especially as a speaker. I mean, I, I've over the 31 years that I've been a speaker, you kind of become a student 
of energy. And they say your energy introduces you long before your handshake ever will. Because we all know that feeling when somebody walks into a room, they don't have to say a word and you immediately go, oh no. Like you can just tell something is off with them and you're just going to back away slowly. You also know that feeling when somebody can walk into a room, not say a word, and you immediately go, I'm going to go hang out with them because they are just radiating something awesome right now. Energy is fascinating to me, but my absolute favorite kind of energy probably has to be anticipation excitement. Something awesome is about to go down and you're excited. There's very little better than that in the world. Like you're on the first hill of a roller coaster, clicking your way up. You're on a plane about to go on a vacation and you know, it's about to take off. Maybe you're going someplace warm. You're at one of these concerts we spoke about and the band's about to play and your people are yelling and screaming and losing their minds. That kind of vibrating energy, there's nothing like it. But what I would argue is that there is a next level to that anticipation, excitement, energy that most of us have forgotten about, but I was recently reminded of. I was reminded of this in, of all places, rural Saskatchewan. I was doing a speaking tour, probably it's got to be five or six years ago now, in rural Saskatchewan in February, which is cold, white, flat, and desolate. And I was doing a whole bunch of little wee towns. So I spoke in this little wee tiny town called Turtleford, Saskatchewan. That's the name of the town. Now, I did not speak at Turtleford Elementary. I did not speak at Turtleford Middle. I did not speak at Turtleford High. I spoke at Turtleford School, period. End of sentence. Kindergarten to grade 12, all in the same building. Grand total number of students the year I was there was 134. 134. That's K to 12. Their graduating class was three. Two guys, one girl. I don't care who you are, that prom's going to suck. But it was a tiny, tiny little school. And I normally only speak to maybe grade 7 to 12. That's my wheelhouse. That cut the number in half. So now I'm down to 60. So what they did is they bust in a bunch of other hilariously small schools to fill the gym up for me. i got going to have a couple of hundred kids. So I'm getting ready in the morning. And a couple of weird things happened in Turtleford that day, Paul. First thing was that they had the kindergarten and first grade class setting up the gym for us, which I thought was a weird child labor thing they had going on in Saskatchewan because these little kids, the go little minions, they're like, okay. And they went and did it. So they're setting up notes, rows of chairs with a great big aisle down the middle. And then the most adorable thing I've ever seen in my life, which was gym mats in the front for the seventh grade kids to sit on. It was adorable, just like crisscross applesauce and they'd sit down, it was adorable. So they're setting up and I mean, they were kindergarten, first grade, the workmanship was terrible. But I'm watching these kids set up and this is when the memory hit me like a ton of bricks of this next level energy that we've all forgotten about. Watching these kindergarten kids put the gym mats down, just this instant clear memory in my head came of there was no greater excitement in your life then walking out of the change room for kindergarten or first grade for gym class and realizing, oh my gosh, the gym mats are out. Because when the gym mats were out, you were going to do some stuff. Some stuff you probably shouldn't do, but you felt safe and protected and invincible because of two inches of foam and a very little bit of vinyl. I mean, it's going to do nothing. But I saw this look go down on these kids' faces. They were like, <laughs> like they were excited. And I'm watching them and then one little guy, over at the far side of the gym, I wish I got this kid's name because he was my hero that day. Far side of the gym, I hear this kid go, I'm going to jump. He meant this big aisle in the middle. There were no mats there. 
So my friend was going to run along these mats, evil Knievel over this wide chasm and plan to land safely on the other side. All of his kindergarten first grade friends were super excited. Now, please keep in mind, I was the only adult in the room at the time. Don't ask me why, but they left me with a bunch of kindergarten kids. That being said, Paul, I will neither confirm nor deny that I was the person that started the chant of jump, jump, jump. That might've been me. I don't know. But so it's me and a bunch of kindergarten kids, jump, jump. And this guy went for it. He hauled tail down these mats and he leapt. And as soon as his foot left the ground, everything kind of went slow-mo for a second. Just, and then bam, he hit the floor hard. It was, it was a pretty big jump. He was never going to make it. And he just, boom, right down. And he's twitching on the ground and like, and all his friends went, dude, that was awesome. And he leapt up and went, I'm doing it again. Because the gym mats were out. There was something amazing about the gym mats being out. They made you feel safe. They made you feel protected. They made you feel like you could do anything. And the reason I tell this story is because one, that was kind of a funny thing that happened in my life. Right, two, right. Every single day, every single one of us have the opportunity, if not the obligation, whether it's in our workplace, in our homes, in the hallways of the buildings we live in, in the streets of our communities, to pull the gym mats out for people, make them feel safe, make them feel protected, make them feel like they can do anything. That is a gift that you can give another person. And I will usually put a pin in that and circle back to it at the end again. I'm all about symmetry with my presentations, but that would be an opening salvo for me. And what a tremendous way to not only get their attention, but what a great story. You're right. We do have to put the gym mats out for other people. What would you, how would you do that for other people? What would you say? Our listeners out there are saying, hey, great, I've, I've got these gym mats I can throw out for somebody, make them feel safe, but how do I go about doing that? What is it that I, how do I connect with someone to the point where I can say, hey, it's all right, you know, you're safe and here's the gym mat, do it. Just be your, your true self. Well, the simplest way I think is just kindness. I mean, the, the term common courtesy is, you know, that's in the vernacular. I think, unfortunately, even pre-pandemic in 2020, common courtesy has become anything but common. So in my mind, we all need to start practicing some uncommon courtesy. And that for me, some of it has presented itself during the pandemic and during these times, we're all feeling low. I don't know about you, but I'm going outside and walking more. I'm going for bike rides. I'm doing all this stuff. And I live in St. Thomas, Ontario, where I grew up. I grew up in this town. I've never seen so many people say hi and smile and wave on walks and bike rides as I have in the last eight or nine months. That is pulling the gym mats out for somebody. You're Holding right. Holding a door saying hi, saying please, saying thank you, being decent human beings. That's uncommon courtesy. And that's pulling the gym mats out for people. I remember a time, and this again, way pre-pandemic. Like, I, th I well, let, let me say this. I, I remember it's this idea of kindness and of service and of helping other people. I remember 1978, I'm eight years old and I'm watching Superman the movie for the very first time. And I'm a huge nerd. If you could, you could only you can see a whole bunch of the stuff that's happening behind me in my uh, my office here. Where there's like action figures and all kinds of things. But Superman's my guy. And Chris Reeve playing Superman in 1978 was magic. Like I've got the poster right across from me on the wall. And the tagline to the movie is so true: "You'll believe a man can fly." 
And that movie absolutely made eight-year-old me believe that a man could fly. And I remember being in the theater watching it. It's the scene where Superman makes his first appearance in costume. The helicopter is dangling off the Daily Planet. Lois Lane's hanging from there. She falls and screams and he in the costume flies up, grabs her and says, and it gets me every time. It's okay, miss, I've got you. And then she, of course, Margot Kidder hilariously says, you've got me, who's got you? <laughs> and then he flies up and the, the, the chopper falls and he grabs it and comes back up. And that, to me, it wasn't about his ability to fly or anything else. He's just saying, I've got you. He's holding her, he's protecting her, he's saving her. He's in a very large way pulling the gym mats out. And that then makes me think of like maybe a decade ago, Christmas shopping. I love to Christmas shop on the 24th of December. I purposefully hold gifts back to buy so that I can go out on the 24th. I love to be a calm boat in a sea of madness. <laughs> And I love being the person who, while people are waiting in line and going, no, please go ahead. And they, they're, what, what do you mean? What? Huh? And they think I want something from them because they're all, everybody's angry. And I just want to spread that, spread that calm, spread that kind all around. And I remember being in a department store, it might've been the Bay or something like that. And I think I was looking for a blender or something for my brother. That's very specific one that he had wanted. And I saw a display model. And I flagged down a salesperson and she went, even when she came over, you could tell she was exasperated. She walked over and went, yes. And it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, I said, um, this, uh, this blender here, I only see the display model. I don't see any boxes. Do you have any? And she said, hang on and went in the back and came back out. And she said, I'm sorry, we only have the display model and I can't sell it to you. And I said, no worries. Thank you so much for uh, checking. I appreciate it. You have a good day. Merry Christmas. And she stopped dead in her tracks and went, wow. And I went, what? And she said, thanks for not yelling at me. I said, why would I yell at you? It's not your fault that the blender isn't here. And she said, well, not everybody yells at me on a day like today. I said, well, not me. Go, go enjoy your day. And I kept bumping into her around the store as I was walking around and I'd be, you know, humming and singing Christmas carols to myself and it made her smile. And the only thought that went through my head was, it's okay, miss, I've got you. You put the mat out for her. Yeah, that's, we can do that in such micro little ways through the course of every single day of just saying hi, because God, we don't know. You've said people are sad. We don't know what people are going through. People have lost loved ones. People have loved ones that are sick. People are worried about their finances, worried about paying the mortgage, putting food on the table, all these things. Smiling with your eyes above that mask, holding a door, making somebody laugh can change somebody's day completely. It like can. And it's such a massive thing that you can do, but it's such a micro thing. Like it's just, it's, it's a mini little action that you take, but it just can change everything. And it creates a ripple because then maybe that person will want to do that for somebody else. And that's how these things spread, but it's Ian, all about the intention we bring. Yes. The intention. And Ian, that's such a, a powerful message. And I hope that everybody out there is, is taking note. One of the ways that we can improve everybody's circumstances is, as you said, through acts of kindness and sure. by giving what we want to receive in return too. And I've said this before, is that taking a few moments just to connect with someone before you ask something of them can make all the difference. It's like 
negotiating. I, you know, I'm a negotiations expert, but I always tell people, if there's an opportunity for you just to connect with the other human being, ask them how they're doing. Ask them you know, if they have any kids, what they think about the weather, what they think about this whole COVID thing. And then when you start to connect with someone and really enjoy speaking with that person, then you get on with whatever it is that you need to get done. And by then they're, they got to know you, like you and trust you. And they, pro- they probably have arrived there. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's the, you, you, the fun one for me, because I do this a lot, is uh, grocery store checkout, because they kind of get on an autopilot. Well, they go, <laughs> yeah. well, well, they will just say, how you doing today? Hope you're having a good day. And they've got these sort of automatic statements that they'll make. And when they'll say, <laughs> do you want a bag with that? Yes. And but if you beat them to the punch with the questions, so I'll walk up and before they can say it, I go, how's your day today? How you doing? They'll almost go, and how's your day? No, wait, you you just asked me. Sorry. And they'll like it'll throw them off completely because <laughs> they've just got an automatic. But it's like pulling somebody out of that routine, pulling somebody out of this automatic habitual thing that they're doing and shaking things up a little bit can be so powerful. Like, and it does come down to the intention that we decide to put out. Look, in in these times, and you know, that phrase, these times gets used so much the, these days, but it's, it, it, the intention's so powerful to me that like, if you wake up every morning and you think, well, this sucks, you're gonna find a way for it to suck. Mm. But if you wake up for every morning and go, today's gonna be a great day. Like I have- multiple practices that I do that I've cobbled together from different friends and mentors of mine over the years of how I start my day. And they help start me off on the right footing so that, I mean, I do several things about doing a little, you know, doing a little movement in the morning, drinking some water in the morning. And my friend, uh, Dr. James Rouse, who's a speaker and a doctor out of Colorado, who, you know, I'm a pretty positive guy, but I looked I look clinically depressed next to James. Um, He's amazing. But he does a thing where he kind of calls it his prayer to the universe, where he out loud says his intention every morning once when he gets up. I do that while I'm making my bed because I make my bed as the first thing that I do every morning. And as I'm doing it, I do this whole two, three minute thing. It's mine. I've you know, written it and curated it over the years so that it's something that speaks directly to me. It changes, it evolves, but the last phrase never changes. And that is, you know, I've I've, saying about, you know, staying true to the version of myself that I would most like to be. I say, today is going to be a great day. And when I start with that intention, that's where for me anyway, confirmation bias starts coming in because If you think if you start your day with, well, today is going to suck, your subconscious is going to find a way to prove you right. Right. But if right. you start your day with, today's gonna be a great day, I'm gonna find a way to prove myself right. It's like with you know, Google, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, Netflix, everything has an algorithm. The algorithm is designed to feed you more of what you want, to curate your reality. And we all have an algorithm in our head. And what we need to do is take control of it and not just let it free wheel. And by saying today's going to be a great day. And, you know, I'm a person I, I have on my business card that I am speaker, author, facilitator, silver lining prospector, because I don't just believe in the silver lining. I'm going looking for it every damn day. And when you do that, it starts to change the algorithm. 
Like the reason Netflix says, because you watched dot, 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 and gives you more, it's trying to feed you more of what you want. So if what you're looking for when you start your day is this sucks, you're going to find this sucks. If what you're looking for when you start your day is today's going to be great. I'm going to find some happy. You're going to damn well find some happy. We need to change our own algorithm. It's not a snap of the fingers. It's work. It's constant. We got to be present. We got to be in the moment and we got to be hungry for it. And as, as I said, be a prospector and go after it. I'm out there with the pickaxe every day looking for that silver lining. And the rewards are so enormous when you do, as you said, you decide and determine your purpose and you start your practices deliberately. Yes. And you being are deliberate. Act- yes. Being deliberate, being active and thinking actively. And listening to yourself actively. It's not just a passive action. You need to listen to what you're saying and believe in what you're saying. Those mantras that you give, dance it out, man. Uh, Get in front of the mirror and and do a dance, but believe it because whatever you believe, as you said, will manifest itself in one way or another. Hey, today's going to be a lousy day. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. The universe is going to conspire with you to make sure that it's a lousy day. You bumped into something. That's just it. It's not even the universe conspiring. It's our own subconscious just trying to prove ourselves right. When people, you know, anthropomorphize the universe as though it is some person that is out to get you, you're out to get you. That's it. You're the person that is building the narrative. The more you look for good, the more good will come. The more you look for bad, the more you're going to find. And again, it's not about being oblivious. This takes work. Does, does, just because I'm a motivational speaker and I'm a positive guy, does it mean I don't have bad days? Hell no. I, I, I get sad. I get low. I've, you know, as I said, I've, I've seen a therapist. I have members of my family that suffer with their, their mental health. I have as well. I, I was medicated. I, I, you got to work at it. It's not a snap of the fingers, but that's the thing is you got to be willing to do the work. And so many people want to go through this life thinking, and this is so fun, came up for me in therapy, probably about six, seven years ago. Things are great, you know, professional wise, loving my speaking, everything else. I was having some issues relationship wise in my life. And I remember saying to my therapist, I feel like I'm just drifting down a river and things are just passing by. Things are happening to me and I'm just watching them come and they're just happening. And I remember my therapist said, well, it sounds like we need to find your paddle. And I told a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, that we were on a car ride not long. And he said in a really profound way, he said, Ian, it's, it's not about finding your paddle. You've always had it. You just have to use it. And I think that's something we all have to do is to use the paddle that we have. Take control of our own actions. Take control instead of just letting things happen to you. Like, go get out there and make things happen, change things up. Right. And that's such a powerful message, Ian. I absolutely connect with that because the title of my book is Take Control of Your Life. That's the title of my book. You know, really, it, right. it, is, it, is, uh, it is not listening to the hostage takers in your mind that want to control you. You have to liberate yourself. And you have, yes. as, you, as you so nicely put it, you have to do the work. Yeah. And we all have our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, cry day where where we feel low, but whether we stay in there is really a choice. Yep. 
Yeah. And again, pain is inevitable. Misery is a choice. I can't say it enough times. It's that's why it's on my arm. It's a constant reminder. And, you know, even fairly recently, I had a couple of bad days in, in some, but you know, you rally, you get going. And I woke up today and said, today's going to be a great day office work to do, but I'm going to have a conversation with Paul and it's going to be fantastic. And that's the kind of find the little carrot you can dangle in front of yourself to allow you to move forward and to, to, to go out there and try and find these things to put the gym out for people. It's funny. You mentioned random acts of kindness before, because I think that doing a, if you want to have a better day, go and do a random act of kindness with no expectation of getting any reward from it or a thank you, do it anonymously. Nothing will be a B12 shot to your day. Like doing that, right. paying for somebody's Tim's behind you and taking off something like that. And then I just, whenever I do that, I literally drive away like, <laughs> like I'm giggling like a little child because I'm excited about that. And I think it's, I think it's awesome. So just get you, you give so much to yourself when you give to others, it fills you up. I have said that before too, Ian, you and I speak the same language. We realized that the first telephone conversation that we had together, and I, I'm not going to take up your entire day, but I just want to wrap this up by asking you, uh, you've given us so much to think about, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to all this because you've given such great nuggets. What additional inspiration would you, or what message would you like to leave with today, other than the great ones that you've already provided, is there something that you could add to the wonderful wonderfulness that you've given us today to take with us? Well, I, I think a lot about time. Time is something I think about, and I um, I have a piece in in one of my presentations, and it's in my book as well, where there was this article that I read ages ago, one of these, you know, long-term studies that had been done where they were talking about the things that we have to do, what those things add up to over the course of your life. And I remember the, the first five that were in there were really stunning to me just for the sheer volume where it said that the average person, if you take birth to death and add up your whole life, the average person, by the time you pass on from this earth will have spent five years standing in line that's no sleeping, no eating, no nothing. Five years standing in line, six years eating, four years doing housework, six months in and a year looking for lost things. Just those five things are 16 and a half years of your life. And if you, you go through and you really look at those five things, for a lot of people, you know, standing in line, you come to the back of a long line and you go, oh, sucks. Do you really want to be saying this sucks for five years of your life? That that's the mindset you're entering into that moment with. You know, anybody who has teen kids knows sitting around the dinner table, it's, you know, gobble, 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 gobble. May I be excused? Or how was your day? Fine. What did you do? Nothing. And then they're out. You know, doing housework, people will tend to go, oh, I don't want to do the housework being in traffic or at traffic lights, you know, using the, uh, using the horn in your car as Morse code for your rage. And then finally, like that year looking for lost things, that's not a fun year because it was right there. And then you snap and you lose it. And then when you finally calm down, you find it 16 and a half years of things where people could very easily say, oh, this sucks. But 
I use the word spend when I describe those things. And I use that word really carefully because in the English language, we tend to use the same words with time as we do with money. You spend time, you spend money. You save time, you save money. You waste time, you waste money. I don't want to spend my time. Spend to me feels like, here, take this. I'm never going to see it again. Almost feels like a waste. I would rather invest. When you invest money, you give something up. There is risk involved, but you can get something way better back. And you invest your time with the attitude you choose to bring. One of those 2000 choices that you make every single day. So does this suck or is it three little words that I also love very much? One of my mantras and one I ended up titling my book, hooray for everything. Hooray for everything is three little funny words that make me laugh that just tell me there's a light at the end of the tunnel, even if I can't see it right now. And so in every situation, is it this sucks or is it hooray for everything? The choice is yours. And as we're all going through this time that we're in, which who knows how long it's going to last, you can either spend or waste your time or you can invest it. And I'm not, I'm not one of those people that's saying, you got to learn how to play guitar and you got to learn how to do that. You do whatever you need to do with your time. Just pursue it positively and with intention. Seek that silver lining and don't spend your time. Invest it like that's, an investment of time is pulling the gym mats out for people. An investment of time is thinking about the memories that are going to go on that ticket stub. An investment of time is I'm going to use my paddle. I'm going to find my own direction. All of these things are an investment and the return that you get is unfathomable. You can't even calculate it. And it's not going to be immediate. This thing's a process. It takes a lot of work. I had my sad days. I've had them throughout the quarantine. I mean, my audiences went away. My work went away for a long time, but man, I'm feeling pretty good. Like the shows are coming in. I'm getting stuff booked. I'm getting connected with people like you, Paul, and being able to share messages this way. And there's still an audience there. We just have to redefine what audience means. And I'm just so passionate about people going out and using their intention and finding that silver lining. I just want them to invest their time and get those returns because we've got so much, we've got so much more time on our hands now. So let's invest it in just being decent, finding that, that uncommon courtesy. Thank you. you. Wow. You have left us with so much to think about. You've inspired me and you've inspired my audience, I'm sure. And as we wrap up, which I, I'd love to talk to you, and we're going to talk some more. You and I, yeah, we're now sure, connected. Please. We're going to yeah. talk with telephone calls, whatever. We'll do another show. Absolutely, my friend. You got it. You have a book and it's, it is yes. hooray for everything. The optimist manifesto. Yes. And uh, where can people get that book and read about you? And you can get that book at uh, iantyson.ca, which is my website, not.com. That is the country singer. Don't go there. You won't find my book. If you see a cowboy hat, that's not the right place. I'm not 84 years old. So look, I'm a, I'm a bald guy, you know, so look for the bald guy. You'll, you'll see the shaved head. Uh, but yeah, you can pick it up on there. Um, there's connections to a whole bunch of other links to a whole bunch of other things on there, my social media, uh, things like that. I've, uh, during uh, lockdown since the beginning, pretty much of this, I created my own little cooking show that I've been doing from my very small little galley kitchen that I have in my apartment. I love my big, you know, studio apartment, but it's got the tiniest little kitchen. And so I started a show called The Confined Kitchen because we were all confined as well. And 
every couple of weeks I'm putting out a recipe. It's about 15 minutes and just kind of having fun and cooking. And there's lots of videos and stuff on my YouTube channel. Links to all my socials are on iantyson.ca, but that's where you can get my book and uh, find out more about what I do. And I love connecting with people this way, Paul, and uh, through podcasts and so, so grateful that you had me on and, uh, and, and, you know, hope to be able to continue to do good work uh, virtually and otherwise as we continue on. Thank you. And I have to say that you are, a, as we spoke the other day on the telephone, I could tell you that I told you during that conversation that I could feel the energy coming out of the phone that you had. Well, thank you. And I have felt it throughout this podcast. And I thank you so much for coming on the show. You are in a very inspirational individual, making a lot of difference in people's lives. And you've given my listeners so many wonderful nuggets. I'm going to I'm going to really look over the, this material and make sure that when I, I write a few things out, I'm going to put those things that you've provided for us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Ian, and I look forward to our very next conversation. Thank you Absolutely. for joining me, my friend. The honor was all mine, and thank you so much for the kind words. I'm, I'm truly, uh, truly humbled. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 